mini-episode 1350 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late-night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1350. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, and uh, it is a pleasure to get back on the show Uh, We haven't been doing as many segments like this about uh, the TV biz. We've been doing some streaming things because streaming over the course of the last 15 months or so has really been uh, very front of mind uh, during the pandemic. But uh, not as much uh, standard TV coverage because it's been such a weird uh, time in TV. And a lot of stuff really kind of, a lot of major developments kind of seemed like they were on hold over that period of time. So as we're coming out of the pandemic, uh, there's truly no better way to celebrate this then by getting back on one of our favorite uh, beloved FDH Lounge dignitaries, Simon Applebaum, the proprietor of Tomorrow Will Be Televised, of course, the great column and podcast that he does uh, all under the branding there. And uh, it is always, as I say, a pleasure to get him back on. Simon, welcome back to the show, buddy. It feels like this is another sign of the world getting back to normal having you back on. It very much is, Rick. It's a pleasure to be back on. Thank you for the invite. And yes, here in New York City, we are finally seeing the big light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, things are reopening. Tribeca Film Festival will be in person again this year, uh, starting next week. We've got uh, Shakespeare in the Park coming up in July. Hopefully, Midsummer Night Swing will be back at Lincoln Center. Ballroom Dance Studios are opening again. Uh, it looks like the uh, our mayor, Bill de Blasio, uh, has finally seen the, the light and realized we have to open up. we got to go back to, if not normal, the next normal. And it looks like thanks to the vaccine and so many people taking it over the last uh, five months or so that uh, we are, we're coming all the way back in that summer. Very good. Very good. Glad to hear it. Uh, and, of course, we'll be talking about the 2021 TV upfronts and new fronts with you, which I understand uh, from what you just said to me off air, we're all virtual this year. But uh, good to hear that it's – Getting back to normal, uh, here where I am on America's North Coast, we just ended up shedding, I think, all of our remaining restrictions June 2nd, so uh, we don't have anything left in Ohio uh, because of the vaccination rates and because the uh, infection rates have been going down at that point, so uh, it's great to have things getting back to normal. We've been going through this weird sort of in-between period here for a little while as we've been reaching this point, and uh, really... The upfronts and the new fronts being all virtual, uh, again, sort of a carryover from where things have been for the last 15 months or so here. And we're coming out of a TV season really kind of unlike any other because, uh, again, we'd never had, we've, we've never lived through anything like this global pandemic. I mean, uh, you, you didn't have TV around during the, uh, the great Spanish flu of 1918. And uh, it was a thing where it, 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 it kind of fascinates me because a lot of the things that they were looking at doing with all the different networks, a lot of it was back to the future type stuff because things that you could do more easily, we've had an explosion in game shows and that type of format, different uh, competition type shows 
And uh, again, I'm sure you have some kind of an idea after the upfronts and the new fronts how much of that stuff's going to stick around in our new normal. Well, first of all, I think the big story coming out of uh, last month's collection of new fronts and then upfronts is this. We are in the smart TV era. The smart TV set, the smart TV device is how people are watching television. Uh, I've talked about this in the past with you and other places and, of course, on to YB Televised Program. Uh, but in the last couple of years, and especially the last year when we've had this pandemic, we now know that more than 80% of all U.S. households have these products. They're watching tens of billions of hours of content and apps streamed and unstreamed through them. This is how Netflix got going. This is how Amazon got going. This is how Hulu got going. We're seeing all these new programming services going through smart TV sets or smart devices. And on top of all that, we have the new lineup of mega content services from Paramount Plus to HBO Max to Prendy TV from Univision to uh, uh, Peacock, Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this has become the new norm for television, if you will. Um, it is the smart TV set, the devices, and the programming services through them. And if there's one thing that uh, I think the advertising community and the viewing community have learned together is we have reached an inflection point. This is where TV is at, and this is where it's going. And now that the pandemic is lifting all over the country and all over the world, you are going to see an explosion of original programming. You're going to see an explosion of diverse programming, both scripted and unscripted. And it's good. And all of these mega content services, not to mention all these new services that are popping up, uh, many of which have been on our show on Tomorrow Be Televised over the last year, year and a half, um, that we're going to see an incredible explosion of creativity like we have never seen before. And, uh, and what's really interesting, Rick, is that this is a phenomenon that wasn't provoked by the media. It wasn't even provoked by the smart TV set makers or the smart TV device makers, not by organizations like the Consumer Technology Association and events like CES every year in Las Vegas. This is a grassroots roots movement that was started by the American public. And I think it will go down as one of the great, great stories uh, phenomenons in the history of, of television and the history of entertainment. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Simon, to try to connect a few dots here, if they can indeed be connected, because uh, this little series that we've been doing on the show here recently with FDH streaming editor Ben Chu and analyzing different developments in the industry here, he has gone so far as to posit that lower ratings, even where they weren't anticipated over the course of the last year, like for the Super Bowl and events like that, of course, a lot of the sporting events that happened out of sequence, you, you could ascribe uh, that as being part of it. Uh, in, in some cases, sports being seen by segments of the population as having gotten politicized, you could see that as part of it. But he really seems to think that we reached a point where, and again, to, to steal your phrase, where there's going to be no turning back from it, of where the on-demand world has gotten to be so great that we reconditioned ourselves during the pandemic because on-demand got to be so important as fresh content uh, was being threatened here, especially in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, do you see that as being a development that ties into what you were just talking about here, that we have reached a point where uh, the public is now so conditioned to things being on-demand that that is tying into uh, the whole smart TV movement? Absolutely, Rick. And there's a couple of things along with that. I think Ben is definitely on the right track. First of all, uh, the American public is sick and tired of linear networks that carry in primetime, daytime, all over the place, uh, way too many commercial breaks per hour and way too many commercials in 
the brakes. I mean, you now have a situation where, um, where years ago, you basically had maybe five minutes of ads in a half hour or, or in an hour. Um, as, as earlier as the 1950s, 1960s, you now have anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes an hour taken over by commercials and commercial breaks and promos. And the American public does not want that. And that's why they turned on Netflix. That's why they turned on Disney Plus. That's why they turned on a lot of these smart TV services. And they're even turning on services that only have, like Hulu, that has maybe five minutes of commercials an hour. That's five minutes of commercials an hour. Because they like the fact that you have less commercial interruption or no commercial interruption. They like the fact that the commercials uh, can be interactive. You can uh, pause the commercials. You can maybe call up uh, more information about a commercial for a deep, uh, for a product or service for a deep dive, or you can even order the product or service while you're watching the commercial through not only your remote control, but more now with your voice because these smart products have artificial intelligence voice features built in, like Siri, Alexa, and Google Assistant. So the, the experience of watching television through Netflix, through smart TV sets, through smart TV devices, through Roku, through Chromecast, is much better than what you get on linear television. And it's showing in the ratings where CBS, for example, NCIS would a number of years ago may have like 15, 20 million people watching a first run episode. Now you're lucky if you get six or seven million. Yeah, the uh, the bleed in audience over a period of time uh, is, is really a thing that, uh, again, outside of live sporting events, a uh, few different uh, genres are uh, really exempt from that. And uh, the next question I want to ask you sort of ties into that as far as one of the things that is supposed to be uh, exempt from that, and that would be the world of the pro graphs. And uh, I want to say also, too, on the whole thing of Hulu, I have found the commercials on there. People ask me, some of my friends ask me about that because uh, I, I don't pay for the commercial-free one. I'm like, I, I don't find it to be intrusive. I don't think it's that bad. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Same thing. No, no they're not, Rick. And, and something else, also, too, that should be that's very important to note, also, mm -hmm. is that in the upfronts this year, for the very first time, whether it was Warner Media, which owns a bunch of cable networks, whether it's Viacom, CBS that runs CBS, whether it's Disney that runs ABC, whether it is um, NBC Universal that runs NBC, or Fox that runs Fox, for the very first time, the broadcast network was not the part, the epicenter of the presentation. It wasn't. It was all about, to their words, the ecosystem. It was about more HBO Max with, with Warner Media. It was about Discovery Plus more with Discovery, which of course now are going to be uh, under the umbrella of next year, Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, with NBC, it was more about Peacock. Uh, with Fox, it was more about Tubi, their multi-channel bundle. With C and CBS, it was more Paramount Plus and Pluto TV. So the, the focus now is either the mega content service, or it's the multi-channel bundle. And they, they became the epicenter of, of their television presentation, whether it was upfront or, or new front. It was not the broadcast network. It was not the multicast channel. And that's a, a real huge shift from what it used to be even just a couple of years ago. That is, absolutely, as we've been getting to this point here. And uh, along the lines of uh, what we were talking about here, yeah, because I, I kind of agree with you, I guess, then, on that uh, the Hulu ads are not that bad. I have found that to be the case also thus far with Peacock, which I, I got the uh, the ad-supported version of it once the uh, WWE Network shut down. And 
I've gone over there, and uh, that's one of these things where I'm just curious, especially based on events of recent days with some of the big cutbacks that WWE's had recently, if there was anything at the NBC Universal upfronts that might have given any kind of hint, because there's all kinds of rumors going around right now. Anytime a company operates the way that Vince is operating them, you automatically assume a sale, notwithstanding the fact that nobody had ever thought that he would ever sell the place. But everything would appear to be pointing to that in a conventional business sense, of course, outside of the fact that obviously their flagship show, as it's been the last couple of years, is SmackDown on Fox. That could be a complicator. But in terms of these bundles that the, uh, the, the major corporations are putting together here, absorbing WWE outright into their whole ecosystem uh, as an owned entity. Was there anything that they, they, looking back on it, that they said that might have given you the sense that that could be feasible? Nothing, Rick. And okay. by the way, there was a master stroke for Peacock. And incidentally, Peacock is not just a mega content service in terms of the original programming they're doing or the library programming. Mm -hmm. They're also becoming a multi-channel bundle into itself. Right. They're uh, doing a Today Show channel. They're doing other mini channels as well. And the WWE Network, I thought, was a masterstroke to take that service along so that they have all the WWE pay-per-view events, um, which now are going to be held uh, in, in person, mm -hmm. in arena, again, right. for the first time in over a year. It's, it's a big deal. And I do think that when SmackDown and Raw and NXT, as they will this summer, go back to being uh, live from across the country in arenas, arenas and stadiums all over the place, I think the ratings will go up. Um, and I also know that uh, WWE just hired Jimmy Horowitz, formerly of ESPN and uh, Fox Sports 1, to be their new uh, head of scripted and unscripted subject. So it looks like WWE may be on the mend. Well, we'll have to see. Yeah, a lot of that goes to their uh, creative, which has been uh, pretty poor in recent years. And, uh, of course, everything has to go through Vince. So if they can get that cleaned up, uh, obviously they have all the assets that they would need to to be successful uh, aside from that. But uh, you, you mentioned also uh, a second ago here, too, and when we're talking about events with these different companies that are involved here, of course, uh, Peacock, absorbing the WWE Network. That was still a relatively fresh thing at the time of the upfronts. Uh, I believe uh, the Warner Media Discovery merger was uh, happening right about the time of the upfronts here. So yeah. very, very curious timing with that, uh, Simon, as far as being able to put out any kind of a, a front out there. Uh, I, I have to say that uh, there was a CNBC uh, interview that I was listening to uh, in the car on uh, satellite radio, and uh, I was kind of, uh, oh, I was with uh, I was with John Malone from Liberty Media. And, and yeah, I, was, I saw that interview with David Faber. Yes, yes. I got to say, uh, and, and Faber does a good job of doing interviews, I'm dumbfounded by the fact that there was no question from him about, are you still going to have uh, HBO Max and Discovery Plus? One would think that that would be a question you'd want to get in there somewhere along the way. Do you have any kind of sense of what way it's leaning, Simon, if they think that they can be uh, having the two separate ones still? Yeah. Uh, first of all, you should know that, that this was probably uh, the merger or the, uh, the, uh, the steal of a deal, if you will, that nobody saw coming. Right, This right. was one of the best-kept secrets of the year. Yes. Maybe the best-kept secret of the year, mm -hmm. as we as we now know. Uh, Jason Collard, head of Warner Media, had no, no idea until a couple of days before this was breaking. David Zaslow apparently used his townhouse in New York to uh, to negotiate the deal with John Stanky of AT&T. And, uh, and the bottom line is this. In many ways, it's a great match. You have Discovery, which is the king of unscripted television, with Discovery Plus, which is off to, I think, a very good start. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, Warner Media, 
which has all these great resources led by Warner Brothers, uh, one of the big television producers around, not to mention the fact that they have HBO Max, which, by the way, has really come into its own yes. uh, in the last year. They were really hurt by the fact that because of the pandemic, a lot of the shows they wanted to get off the ground with at the start a year ago couldn't happen. But they really rebounded. They rebounded with The Flight Attendant. They rebounded last month with Hacks and, of course, the Friends Reunion Special, which uh, is turning out to be a box office success. And also Mayor of Easttown, the HBO uh, attraction with Kate Winslet that also got a great uh, audience on HBO Max. And they're on their way. They got Gossip Girl coming up next month. The, the bottom line is I think we're going to wait or have to wait until next year to see what, what breaks out. I could see, for example, uh, HBO Max and Discovery Plus staying side by side with each other. You know, with Discovery staying on the unscripted side and HBO Max focusing more on scripted, a little unscripted, more kids and family stuff, uh, and, and things like that. There was talk that Jason Kalar was so angry with the development that he was going to leave. He'd hired a legal team. That's not the case. He's already at a town hall with warning me in place. I know I'm staying at least until the, the merger takes place, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, no question that this was a whale of an agreement that uh, was presented, uh, that was put together by Dead of Night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nobody saw it coming, and uh, one would think that they would be taking a look to see over a period of time here how it goes. Uh, the, the only other thing that you could compare this to would be Disney, the way that they have Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN+, Plus. and there have been folks like me over a period of time that have kind of thought, like, you know, is, isn't there a way, if you're Disney, to consolidate that to two streaming services, if not one? And uh, they've been doing the bundle, and I guess they've been making it work to whatever degree, but uh, the only one that's, that's really uh, got two of them or more going side by side would be Disney. So I'm guessing yeah. that that might be something that they're going to try and draw some lessons from how that's going before they make a decision with their two streaming services. And right now it looks like Disney Plus is going to stay ad-free, Hulu stays ad-supported, ESPN can go either way, ESPN Plus can go either way, and I have to say Disney Plus has been, in the uh, year and a half it's been operating, just an amazing success. Mandalorian has been a big winner for them, the early Marvel shows, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, uh, were Dynamite success stories. Loki, which comes out next uh, in, a, in a week or so, that looks like it'll be a success. I think some of these miniseries will become series. Um, later this fall, we're going to see the next group of uh, Star Wars programs. Uh, and then there's some shows like The Mysterious Bendix Society and, uh, and Big Shot and some others that either have started the last couple of months, Mighty Ducks, that have started the last couple of months or will start soon that I think could become sleeper hits. Uh, Disney Plus is off to the races. I think they've done better than they ever thought, and that's why they decided last year, um, at the start of this year, we're going to up the ante in terms of virtual production. Simon, something that I want to ask you, and this is something where I'm going to go back to our, our streaming series with uh, our, our streaming editor, Ben Chu, when we were kind of looking at this. Questions that he and I can pose rhetorically, just, you know, like, why aren't they doing it a certain way? I love that I can ask somebody like you, and unlike me and Ben, you might actually have an idea as to why this is. So I hear this from Disney that they're going to have, what is it, 10 different series of spinoffs in all uh, on, on Star Wars going to Disney+. Plus. And clearly that's going to work well. The Mandalorians work great, whatever. What I'm thinking is, is if I was running the thing, and maybe this is why I shouldn't be, I'd be thinking, gee, couldn't I diversify a little bit? Slap maybe one of those on ABC, if not two of them. Like, I, I, I almost kind of wonder about that because they're they're clearly concerned about the the ongoing viability of the networks as well. To take all of that stuff and put it behind the paywall, as opposed to 
beefing up your actual primetime lineup, which God only knows how much a Star Wars thing would do for your primetime lineup. What's the thinking on that from your perspective, Simon, on the decision to put it all on Disney Plus? Well, the thinking is franchise. That's okay. another big thing that's popping for a lot of these mega content in particular, and also the Netflixes and, and so on and so forth, which is the more franchise you have and the more uh, directions of a franchise you have, like Star Wars, like Marvel, like other Lucasfilm properties, uh, the better you are. And, uh, and the other thing is is that, unfortunately, because of how Aids of S.H.I.E.L.D. did on ABC, which was a minor success at best, emphasis on minor, that there may be this sense of, well, if we put on ABC, it means the show is not that great. It doesn't have the production values that you would think. I mean, this, you watch The Mandalorian, the production values on that program is tremendous. The production values on WandaVision are tremendous. Um, I don't know if, if, if ABC would be willing to give, give let's say, even on a second or third window, uh, The Mandalorian on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they could, uh, I, I think ABC wants to have its own identity. The question is, we don't know what the identity is. But you may, you may mention, by the way, earlier. I think part of the identity is going to be game shows. I think game shows will become more and more of, of ABC's lineup. We're seeing it not just on. This was the year that uh, Summer Fun and Games was really game shows all year round. Yeah. You saw Supermarket Sweep in the fall with Leslie Jones. That's coming back. Uh, you had Celebrity Wheel of Fortune, The Chase, and the um, uh, and the Craig Ferguson show, The Hustler. Uh, all on Thursday night. They're all coming back. Chase is coming back this Sunday night with uh, Mark Labatt, one of the uh, beasts from the original British series and the original Game Show Network series, Brooke Burns. Met him, by the way. The man is an incredible trivia giant. And mm-hmm. he is a beast in every sort of respect, too, by the way. A great guy, too, by the way. His wife also. And uh, uh, I think you're going to see ABC become more unscripted and more uh, more game show. And then you have to wonder, uh, and it looks like, you know, uh, if, if, if I think AB, NBC and CBS can become more of the CBS can become more of the procedural network, um, which they've always been. But I think they double down on that. And uh, in addition, both CBS and NBC become the Dick Wolf networks. You know, think about this: Dick Wolf this fall is going to occupy three straight nights of prime time, nine television series, six produced in New York, three FBI, three Law and Order, three uh, Chicago shows. Uh, plus, he has other deals in the works with Peacock. He has a Netflix show in the works. He has a show coming up on IMDb.tv. That's Amazon's ad-supported service. By the way, keep your eye on that, by the way. That's going to be a very important story to watch uh, in this coming year with all the new shows they've got cooking there. And it can be a big beneficiary of the MGM deal if they uh, decide to take original shows from uh, the franchises in uh, that lineup of uh, films and TV shows. So um, it's going to be very interesting to see if uh, we see this you know, ABC become the game show network uh, on broadcast, uh, CBS become the procedural network, and NBC, who knows what. Yeah, and that uh, that's fascinating to me that uh, they might actually uh, prove to be that divergent, because uh, pr- traditionally it's always been networks might lean a little bit more in one direction or, or the other, but uh, you wouldn't find them to be uh, that strongly branded in one direction versus the other. And uh, yeah, ABC... Uh, back to the 1950s with their uh, strategy on uh, primetime uh, game shows. Who saw that coming prior to the pandemic? But uh, again, it's a matter of managing the costs at the very least as uh, the the audiences continue to splinter. And uh, this is a thing where, again, with, uh, with CBS, with everything that they've got going on there, one of the things I find to be interesting... Oh, by the way, Rick, yeah. uh, 
staying with game shows for a moment, mm-hmm. I, I thought this year with the pandemic, I thought some shows were helped by the pandemic and many were hurt. Mm-hmm. They were hurt because of the lack of a live audience. Now, some of the shows like Celebrity Wheel of Fortune and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with Jimmy Kimmel, I think worked because they were able to utilize the set, they were able to utilize the format and, and not be so audience dependent. But if you watch, for example, The Price is Right on CBS, Despite the best efforts of Evelyn Warfel, I thought that their, this past season was terrible, the worst ever. Why? Because the contestants uh, had to come out foolish. When you when they were introduced, you know, come on down, they went way overboard. It looks stupid. Um, it looks stupid to have an audience applause track. Um, it, it really hurt. Family Feud, Steve Harvey, um, watching him in syndication was really unbearable. Uh, he wanted to be close to those contestants. You could tell he was really fighting it. He was really, really fighting it. Because you know, if you watch Family Feud, you know how close he is to contestants. You know how he wants to interplay with them. He couldn't do it because of the pandemic, because of the social distancing. It really hurt that series. And I hope when Family Feud comes back into syndication this fall, that they, that uh, Eric Garcia, the mayor of Los Angeles, and Gavin Newsom will lift the restrictions on social distancing so you can get live audiences back. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, and, and it should be sustainable at this stage of the pandemic as it is uh, fading away. Uh, at least domestically, uh, if not the rest of the world. But as far as that goes, uh, I'm curious in terms of whether anything was said at the uh, the upfronts about this. One of the things uh, that Ben Shu and I had remarked about in our streaming series recently, and like I said, it's it's so great that he and I, we get to pose these rhetorical questions, but I can actually pose them to you and you might have some kind of a sense as opposed to us, like, gee, I wonder why they're doing this. The whole thing of like Paramount Plus, it strikes me that it's neither fish nor fowl, because what they're doing is, of course, when you've got things like Yellowstone that they're leasing out to Peacock, you know, they're putting some of their eggs in the basket, but they're putting some of their eggs in the basket of leasing it out other places versus every other major conglomerate. They're making sure that their streaming service has as much stuff as they can get their mitts on and their own programming, and they're certainly not looking to for all intents and purposes, lease out their stuff to other entities. Was there any kind of talk whatsoever about the business model of that at the uh, the CBS upfronts? No, there, okay. was, there wasn't much about that. Uh, and there is a sense that Paramount Plus has gotten off to a slow start because they didn't have much original program. It was yeah. lots of library stuff. Right. But that is going to shift. And one of the things that's very interesting is is that they're, they're depending on Nickelodeon to help that shift. Right. I think there's a sense there that uh, the kids and family television uh, could be the differentiation factor with Paramount+. Plus. Uh, last week, they presented the new computer-generated animation version of Rugrats, which is one of the great Nickelodeon animated shows of all time. Uh, and then in a couple of weeks, iCarly is coming back. Uh, not on Nickelodeon, with many of the original cast members, but on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, I think it's, uh, A, I think it's a long-term tactic but it's also a short-term tactic while they try to get uh their most of the original shows many of which are based on uh paramount movies some are based on uh on other properties to uh to get going for example um they want to do a love story series an anthology show they want to do a series based on the famous movie the parallax view with warren Beatty. um they want to do um some stuff based on cbs news properties uh it's um it's going to take them a while. And by the way, next week, Paramount Plus, on Monday, uh, will announce their ad-supported format. So I, I think they got really shortchanged by the lack of original programming, and they're, they're playing catch-up. But hopefully they'll pay catch-up pretty fast. And the Nickelodeon, uh, the transfers of Nickelodeon with new episodes, like our Carly and Mugrats, I think will be a, uh, 
could be a, a very big winner for them in terms of uh, getting a uh, kids and family audience. See, and that's interesting as far as the ad-supported stuff goes with Paramount Plus, because one of the things, again, that confuses me from, from a business perspective uh, is as, as much as I enjoy uh, a lot of the things that they have on Pluto TV, uh, essentially it is, uh, I guess you could call that in many ways, right, like the, the, the free version of Paramount Plus, uh, because they have a lot of things on there that, uh, and again, it's all ad-supported, there's no paywall with, with Pluto TV, uh, but that's one of the things where I just wonder about that as they're moving along, like are they making enough off of the ads to continue to sustain Pluto TV even as they're pushing Paramount Plus? I guess they must be. They must be, and they're doing very well with advertising, mm -hmm. uh, and so is Tubi from mm -hmm. Fox. Yes, yes. And one of the things I think you're going to see is that as we go forward, you're going to see these multi-channel bundles also be a home for original programming. Mm -hmm. Tubi is already, by the way, doing some a little a little bit of originals. Okay. Uh, and so is Pluto. And uh, Tubi is going to be running this new thing called Tubi Originals starting in the fall. Uh, some documentary, some scripted, some unscripted. Uh, Roku is now an original programming maker. They're taking the, what used to be the Quibi or QB short-form programming that was yep. on smartphones uh, and putting them on their, their uh, smart TV uh, device. And they also have some other items, irons in the fire too. And also what's interesting is that for the first time in these new fronts and upfronts, you saw the smart TV makers, Samsung, LG, Vizio say, hey, ad community, we're doing great with all these channels we're putting on our service. Uh, you want to advertise with us. And in the case of Vizio, they went one step further. We're actually going to create new channels. New channels you will only find on Vizio. We're doing it with outside players. We're starting with an esports channel that will start with a company called Subnation this summer. Uh, we're going to do a gay and lesbian channel. We're going to do some other channels too. Uh, and guess what, ad community? Um, people want this. And uh, why not advertise with us? So I think that's going to be very interesting to see how the ad community responds with not only these smart TV sets and devices being a home for content services, but themselves being content and advertising players. That is endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't heard about that part, but uh, I mean, this is just uh, a continuing explosion as far as the number of places that are carrying content. And something you touched on just briefly before, uh, I had just seen a little bit about this recently, but hadn't heard much about it. I want to circle back around to it, this I IMDb uh, TV uh, what's that going to be about? Because we all know, you know, the Internet Movie Database, we all know the website and all the information that it's had over a period of time and the app and whatever, but uh, I, I'd seen uh, about uh, something about uh, content coming to it, but you alluded to that. Please elaborate. Sure. Well, IMDB.TV is Amazon's ad-supported television service. This oh. is like, uh, because Amazon Prime, all the original programming does not take advertising, this service does. Okay. As it's turned out, their library content and a growing number of original content is doing very well. And so that, that that's because that's why – and now Amazon is going to spend some money to uh, put in new content. Everything from uh, a spinoff of Bosch, which is uh, one of the biggest hits on Amazon, uh, will be on IMD.TV. Judge Judy's new show will be on IMDb.tv. Leverage is doing a spinoff show that was the former TNT series, mm -hmm. is doing a new series starting in July. It will later go on Ion TV at a second run, uh, the, the new Script Zone Broadcast Network, which has been around for years, but now under Script's ownership. And you're going to see much, much more in terms of original production. 
They are trying to work with major producers, telling them, hey, Amazon's going to spend a lot on this channel. You should be part of it. And uh, that's why I think this coming year, keep your eye on imbd.tv. I think they're going to be – I think if Amazon can make this work, this will become a giant revenue stream for them. Wow, yeah. I didn't realize the uh, Amazon tie-in with that. And that's one of these things here, too, that uh, with, with Amazon recently picking up uh, the MGM library and the acquisition here, uh, I, I, it, I, there's not necessarily any kind of short-term implications for that, but one wonders down the road how that could be incorporated. Well, the thing is, you know, MGM has so many franchises. First of all, MGM is now a major TV player with The Handmaid's Tale, Margo, mm -hmm. etc. Right. But they have a library of 17,000 TV show episodes. They have thousands of movies. Uh, they have all sorts of franchises they could uh, can make TV series out of. There are a lot of TV shows that they've made over the, over the years, like The Thin Man, Dr. Kildare, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which certainly could come back uh, in, as reboots on IMDb.tv or on Amazon Prime. And uh, it's a treasure trove. And when Mike Hopkins was one of the key executives in, in TV at Amazon, he said, I think, very well. This is a treasure trove of IP that we can reimagine uh, for television. See, Simon, that's an excellent point because, uh, and, and again, to, to harken back to some of our recent streaming discussions on the show, some of it has been around the notion that uh, as the networks are, are running uh, their, their streaming uh, universes here, what is Netflix going to do for content going forward? Amazon, uh, they've both been on a sort of catch-as-catch-can basis trying to find what they can, where they can. At the very least for Amazon, does this go a long way towards that? Because those two magic words that you mentioned there, intellectual property, uh, that that's something where uh, to, to be able to just reauthorize all different types of uses of these things that are in the MGM library over a period of time, one would think uh, that uh, in, in terms of where they're going to get their future programming from, that would go a long way to answering it right there. It will. And then there's another thing that... Uh will go a long way, not just for uh, for MGM, but for everybody else in television. It's called the Program Development Deal. We're seeing more and more series creators and motion picture producers and creators make program development deals with Netflix, with Hulu, with Amazon, with IMBD.TV, with, um, with, with Viacom CBS, with Peacock, and so forth. Uh, and they're going to be creating the new shows, that the new franchises that uh, will either make it or break it. And these film development deals are happening fast and furious. They're more and more important now than ever before. And uh, and I think and now, as I said, the pandemic is lifting. You're finally going to see these deals that have been in the works, like Chandra Rhimes, like um, Sam Esmail, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Greg Berlanti, and so forth. You're going to see them really fly. John Wells, you're going to see them really, really fly. You know, Chandra Rhimes had one of the big hits this fall, this year, this season with, with Bridgerton. It's been renewed for four seasons. There's now talk of a spinoff. And that's just the first of the Shonda Rhyme shows that are coming out on Netflix. There's a whole lot more coming from that stable. Interesting. Well, that's one way to address those questions going forward as to how they're going to get their original programming again, because everyone else is clawing back what they possibly can. They've lost, of course, in the last year plus friends in the office uh, as they've moved to the different uh, network-owned entities but, uh, yeah, this is a, a very, very interesting uh, angle to it as far as uh, how uh, all the original programming is going to continue to come into play here. And that's one of these things where uh, one wonders in, in, in looking at this uh, here. You mentioned before about Tubi. That's one that I have found to be 
uh, really kind of underrated out there and uh, similar in interface uh, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, or, or at the very least in terms of the, the, the content of programming uh, to Pluto out there if you're looking at some of the free services. But uh, it sounds like Fox is prepared to get a lot more aggressive with what's going to be there. And uh, again, it would seem like it should be a plus to everybody uh, that uh, it is a free one, but people are so... Yeah inured to uh, subscribing to Netflix, Hulu, whatever. I almost wonder in a backhanded kind of a way if that in any way might inhibit uh, Fox from getting out the word of how much great stuff is there. Because we all tend to kind of think that eh, if you want to get the really good stuff, you probably got to pay at least a little bit for it. And I wonder if that's something that Fox has to break through. Uh, I think they can use Tubi in a way as a way to break through because now you're seeing uh, when Fox premieres a new series, the next night it's on Tubi mm -hmm. in, in some form. You know, whether it's The Masked Singer or any of their new spectacle shows that they're doing, like uh, Lego Masters, Domino Masters, the new show they're coming out with. I, I think it's interesting to see what kind of role Tubi plays in, um, in, in the Fox hierarchy uh, going forward. It was interesting watching the, the Fox, the Tubi up front, Tubi new front, excuse me, to see what kind of uh, play that really got from Charlie Collier, the head of Fox, formerly of AMC. Mm -hmm. uh, two other things I want to get to uh, for time. One is, uh, I think this coming season is going to be a very critical time for the award shows. Yes. I think that the Academy Awards is in big trouble. Yep. I really, really believe it coming off the, this past year's show, and the Emmy Awards are also in trouble. And the Tony Awards may be in trouble in a very interesting way. To talk about the Academy Awards, I may be going against the grain on this, but I think the reason why this show had the worst rating, the worst audience in the history of maybe award show television and of the Academy Awards is not because of the pandemic and not because uh, the films weren't out there, that kind of thing. It was because for the last couple of years, the Academy Awards, the way they're presented, too much inside baseball, too much politicking, too much politicizing, not enough. Educate the people about the movies. The whole idea of an award show, Rick, is two things. One, you want to highlight the, the achievements of the medium. But the other thing is you want to educate people about why should you care about seeing these movies? Why should you care about why these films won? And what happened this past April with ABC's presentation was a classic example of what you don't do. This was, I think, one of the worst produced award shows I have ever seen. It was a travesty. It was an absolute disgrace to ABC, to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and to anybody watching. And there's no question why the sets were turned off. Um, it was a bomb. It was a bomb from start to finish. It was everything from what Regina King said at the beginning about the the references to George Floyd, to the Black Lives Matter um, references, to um, to not showing clips of the movies. Um, to uh, a in memoriam segment that was a disaster, to that stupid um, with 15 minutes to go, the trivia segment with Glenn Close doing the boot, which I thought was embarrassing, and then finally uh, the screw up in terms of not running the best picture uh, award last and uh, getting all the uh, all the uh, interest on the best actor, and it blew up in their face when Anthony Hopkins won rather than uh, Chadwick Boswick for Black Panther, uh, Boswick for My Rainy's Black Bottom. That really blew up in their face. Yeah, clearly. And here's the thing, too, Simon, is, and this is just sort of a feel kind of a thing on my part, as opposed to any kind of a, a scientific observation. But when you're talking about, and we'll leave Fox out of this, because Fox might be even more so than ABC on what I'm about to say, but the classic three networks, 
CBS, NBC, ABC. For as long as I can remember, ABC is what I would call, uh, in many circumstances, the breeziest of the three networks. And I feel like that might have been a really bad fit for this one this year. You're already having it in a way that's a little bit untraditional or a lot untraditional, let's be honest. And, and I almost feel like CB, or like ABC's tendency sometimes to be a little breezy, to be a little hammy, whatever, as opposed to the other networks that can be a little bit more staid. It felt like a really bad chemistry fit with what was already going to be a weird Oscars. But you know, Rick, the, the thing that shocked the heck out of me, was that it seemed that ABC had no oversight or the Academy of Motion Picture oversight about what was done. And I'm going to name the executive producers. Steven Sonnenberg, Jesse Collins, and Stacey Scher seemed to get their own way without any without any back, uh, without any uh, blowback from ABC and the Academy. Where were they? Why, why when they were so, why when it was talked about, well, we're not going to show any film clips from the, did why anybody from ABC say, don't you think we ought to show film clips of the awards, of, of the nominees? Don't yeah. you think we ought to say more about the films? Then uh, don't you think we should, uh, in memoriam, we should give more than just a half a, a half a second yeah. to um, to the people that passed away this year um, that we all know and love? Uh, it just it, it was amazing to me that nobody uh, questioned the, the motives of these producers. Yeah, yeah, and, and the same thing, by the way, also with the Grammy Awards. Why did CBS let that police brutality number? Uh, and the number with uh, Carly B, which really was should not have been put on the air with terrible choreography. Uh, why was that allowed on the air? Why was that allowed? And again, the Grammy Awards were the worst-rated Grammys in history. And usually, it's one of the it, it's one of the best. Why? Because of, of production numbers that should not have been put on the air. True. I mean, and that were too political. That's that's a that's an excellent excellent point. And uh, for perhaps this isn't the best possible segue. Uh, for me, but uh, oh, one, this by is. By the way, one more thing yeah. about the awards. Sure. Keep your eye on the Tony Awards this fall, because we may get a clue about how award. If, if these award shows don't turn the ratings around, we may be getting a clue about where these things are going to go. Uh, the Tony Awards, which usually are held this month on CBS, are going to be held in September, timed with the reopening of Broadway. Mm -hmm. And for the very first time, the Tony Awards are going to run not on CBS. But on Paramount Plus, from wow. 7 to 9 p.m. Wow. Now, at 9 p.m., CBS will do a broad-based back special. It'll be live. They will have scenes from some of the Tony winners and nominated musicals. And they will present live on the air the three top Tony categories. Best musical, best play, best revival. Okay. It's going to be very interesting to see how this format works. Yeah. If it works... We may be getting a sneak peek as to what will happen to all major award shows if they don't turn the ratings around. Well, they go they go streaming. I must be Nostradamus because what did I say before about Paramount Plus? Neither fish nor fowl. So basically, this is neither fish nor fowl on uh, streaming versus carrying it on a network. Uh, a little bit of both here. Very very interesting. And, yeah, and by the way, to be fair to CBS, they have supported the Tony Awards in thick and thin. The Tony Awards are, are one of the best award shows on television every year. The problem with the Tony Awards and why they get the lowest rating of the four majors, I'm talking Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, Tonys, is because there is no rooting interest outside New York City for Broadway musicals and Broadway plays. Right. Because unlike other entertainment mediums, theater does not premiere simultaneously all over the country as a film, as a TV show, as a book. And as a as a music soundtrack, 
Um, theater is basically a New York medium. It's, it's sad, but that's the case. And there's no really interest. And, and you wish that uh, the Broadway theater community would realize, hey, we've got now some mediums, including, by the way, a theater channel is available on smart TV sets and devices, mm-hmm. or a service like All Arts from PBS, which is also running on smart TV sets and devices from Channel 13 here in New York, the PBS flagship station here, that, uh, that they could use to, to uh, highlight the medium. And, uh, and they don't do it, and they really need to do it a lot more. Incidentally, we recently had, um, on Tomorrow We Televised last week, we had a, a terrific uh, executive from the Dallas Opera. And what they're doing now is they're doing a 24-hour opera service on smart TV sets and devices called the Dallas Opera TV. And it is unlike any opera service you've ever seen. It, it showcases opera in all sorts of ways. It cont- it, it, it's contemporary fashion. It does all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, it makes it really palatable. Uh, it's fun to watch. Uh, they do stuff for kids. They do uh, opera singers uh, acting as vampires, playing a baseball game. It, it's it's really amazing. And, and uh, I have to say, um, uh, the head of this, who's, a, who's an opera singer, uh, did a marvelous job with this. And I, and I really hope the Metropolitan Opera and all the other opera companies around the country uh, look at what they're doing. This could be the savior of opera uh, uh, on television and also uh, as a national medium. Very much so, yes, yes, because it's one of these things here, I mean, and we can either, we can bemoan this perhaps uh, if we're so inclined, but uh, theater, opera, whatever, in today's society, it's niche, and uh, you need to look for ways to be able to reach new audiences, and uh, whether it be conventional broadcast, whether it be some of the mass streaming services, whatever the case may be, uh, the pandemic perhaps might have opened up some eyes as to ways to be able to reach new audiences, uh, yeah. Because there there weren't ways to get uh, you know conventional theater out there before audiences during the pandemic. So yes, I mean long term, oddly enough, it could prove to be something that could be uh, helpful uh, in that limited sense for how horrible. It, it could, Rick. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I think the the thing is though that when it comes to the major award shows, they are in danger of becoming a niche medium if at all yes. if they don't get their act together. And if I were to give them advice, it would be this: stop the politicking. Stop the uh, the inside baseball. Entertain us, enlighten us, engage us, engage us in the art. Why should we care about these television shows? Why should we care about these films? Um, be entertaining. Let us let us know about the movies. Let, we don't want to know about the the, the celebrities' cause or or the presenter. Um, you know, do what you, you're you're a medium for crying out loud. Uh, you're a visual medium. Be visual in terms of showcasing it. And by the way, when it comes to the In Memoriam segment at the Oscars, here's another bit of news. Hire the people from Turner Classic Movies. Every year they come yep. out with a wonderful featurette called TCM Remembers. Yep. Uh, it's a fantastic featurette. It, it hits the moon in terms of being very comprehensive about uh, who passed away in terms of film from all over the world. They should hire the people doing that segment and do it on the Oscars. You because, are right. Uh, left to their own accord, they don't do a great job. Sure. Might as well go to the people who are already doing it and doing it well. Uh, that is an excellent, excellent point there. And uh, I have to say, uh, again, too, uh, as we go through uh, with the new fronts and the upfronts every year, uh, one of the things uh, that I know traditionally is something that you've always got your eye on, and I always make sure to earmark a little bit of time here to talk about this, is the continued trend towards diversity in broadcasting. So, uh, Simon, anything you noticed from the 2021 uh, presentations here uh, that continues to move in that direction? 
Yes, absolutely. A couple of things. First of all, uh, one of the big stories with the upfront new fronts was Byron Allen, uh, the owner of the Weather Channel, owner of Entertainment Studios, owner of a lot of different things in television, uh, syndication, powerhouse. Uh, Byron decided he is going to be on the warpath to try to get more advertising dollars for African-American-owned media. Um, and by that, I'm talking about services that are produced by African-Americans, like Black News Channel, like what Byron Allen is doing, and a lot of other services, not just, by the way, television, but print, uh, movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what he wants to do is he wants to get ad agencies to spend 5 to 10% of their annual budget on black-owned media. Um, and if they don't uh, comply, he will get on the warpath with them, uh, including legal action. Uh, he put together, under the moniker of Black Media Matters, a very interesting two-day upfront event featuring a lot of these interesting players, uh, not all of them, but, but quite a bit of them, some of them I never heard of, but I think have very promising services. And I think that Byron uh, made a big case uh, with the ad community for that. A number of the ad, uh, ad agencies are now promising 5%, uh, in one case 2%, which they may up to 5 so I think that was very big. The other thing that, uh, two other things that happened. Number one, Spanish language media was also on a tear in terms of trying to get more bucks. Um, Donna Speciale, the former Turner um, advertising executive, she's now head of advertising at Univision, made the case, not just at the upfront, but pre upfront event, saying, hey, it's great that 400 national advertisers now advertise regularly on Spanish language television, but there's 1,900 national advertisers overall, and the majority of them are not advertising. What the heck, what the heck's going on? So it wasn't just her that was making the case to the spa to more Spanish language media, uh, TV uh, advertising and ad campaigns, but it was also Estrella Media, which is a fast growing up and coming player, and well as Canela Media. And by the way, it's not just anymore single like what I was talking about before. It's also ecosystem. They have a base channel. They also have, in the case of Univision, Prende TV. They've got Unimas, which is a sister broadcast network, Galavision, their cable network, uh, Tudin, their sports network. In the case of Canela Media, they are launching a music service this fall. They're going to be launching original shows, which I think will be produced, television produced in the United States next year. And Australia Media now is not only uh, their broadcast network, which is also on smart TV sets, but also they have a 24-hour news channel, and they're launching a 24-hour games network. That's game shows uh, in the next few months. So, again, these Spanish-language television players are also on the ecosystem kick, and they're trying to use that as a way to say, hey, look, we deserve more of your budgets. More people are watching Spanish-language television. On any given night, Univision beats at least one broadcast network, sometimes two. Uh, so why aren't we getting our share of the ad bucks? I mean, that makes sense that they would be going in the direction that the rest of media is. It's all about trying to create these large ecosystems and uh, fit people into one area or another. And, what, and, and hey, look, I, I'm sympathetic to that. On the show, where nothing is off topic. I mean, we are nothing if not a broad ecosystem ourselves here on this show with our range of uh, content. So uh, yeah. I can identify with that uh, personally. But, uh, yeah, I can say uh, fr from within that uh, and going back now uh, over a decade, uh, it has always been a pleasure to be able to get you on, Simon, talking about these things here. Uh, and Rick, uh, Rick, Rick, yeah. before we go, yeah. one more thing I want to, want to mention about the new fronts and the upfronts. Oh, Something yeah. else to keep an eye out for. Sure. Uh, this, this may be the first time that we are going to see uh, new ways to fund television shows, crowdfunding, mm -hmm. as well as using cryptocurrency, blockchain, and uh, and these uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs. I thought the most interesting story of the upfronts or the new fronts was Fox announcing we're going to launch 
a new cartoon series by Dan Harmon of Community Fame, and we're going to fund it through cryptocurrency and NFT. And in fact, we're even going to create a division of our company that is going to do these kind of projects. Keep your eye on this development. This may finally be the time for cryptocurrency and blockchain and NFTs to break out as a way to fund new television programming and new television networks. Wow. Yeah, that's a major uh, development. Uh, to, to, also. to be sure, that, that definitely is. And uh, yeah, as, uh, as, as always here uh, on the show, uh, Simon, I'd uh, love to get you a chance to uh, talk about what you've got going on here. Of course, under the banner of uh, Tomorrow Will Be Televised, uh, you've had a great column over the years, podcast, etc. So uh, anything you want to get across about that, uh, Simon, please, by all means. Absolutely, Rick. We are now in our 14th year. We go into our 15th year uh, in August. And uh, in the last year, we've really grown uh, the number of podcast sites you can check us out on. We're on live, by the way, uh, from 3 to 4, 3 to 4.30. Tomorrow, we're on from 3 to 5. Uh, on Blog Talk Radio, Spreaker, and Tuner Radio, so now a simulcast. But uh, in the last few, oh, so far this year, we've added Amazon Music and we've added Verbal, B-U-R-B-L, to our podcast uh, audience, including, uh, including iHeartRadio's podcast network, which we're now in year three on. Uh, and we have some other things that we're working on. We're trying to get on any of the other podcast sites. And I may be able to announce very soon another way that people can take our show. But uh, more people listening. Uh, I'm really thrilled with the guests we're having on. Uh, and uh, it's really been a lot. It's, it's just been amazing, particularly in the last year and a half, to feature many of the, of the smart TV programming services, many of which are by people of color, organizations of color, many produced by independent players, many produced involving women. And it's been really great to see this new ecosystem of television services pop up. Uh, that's been, I think, one of the most exciting things, particularly in the last year. And I'm really happy that, uh, again, that we now have Amazon Music and we have Verbal and iHeartRadio all involved. And I hope we can get many of the other podcast sites to uh, join in uh, before the year is out. Very good, very good. And, yes, that's something we've worked on here uh, with our show as well as different distribution uh, services. So, yes, I'm sympathetic to you in that regard and trying to get it out there. Uh, it definitely takes some work, but it's worth doing. And uh, our podcasts, by the way, are really hot. And I'll tell you something, uh, I Interactive Ad Bureau, I want to congratulate you for doing a podcast up front this year, three-day deal in May. And uh, podcasts have become the new intellectual property for television. You're now seeing uh, podcast companies being developed specifically to develop first podcasts that can later be adapted into television and movies. Yes. And you're going to see more, a lot more of that in the years to come. Yes. Well, I will uh, gladly stick my hand in the air and uh, volunteer to adapt this to television uh, should the demand arise. So <laughs> we'll have to see how it goes, uh, Simon. But like I said, always a uh, pleasure to get you on uh, out, of, out of all the folks. Uh, and and I, I don't mean this as a slight to anybody among us, our dignitaries, but when I'm talking about our, our smartest FDH lounge dignitaries, you are right there at the head of the class, my friend. Always a pleasure. Rick, it's been a ball. Thank you. Thank you to Steve Sorrell, your producer. Uh, and uh, hopefully next year we all get together at these upfronts. I really miss the in-person. I really hope that uh, we get it back next year here in New York and get back big. Yeah, I think it'll move back towards that. That is something to uh, look forward to. So thank you uh, very much, Simon. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1350.